1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When a rover drops onto Mars today, humanity's efforts to spot extraterrestrial life will get a little boost. The technology to go looking for it, to see evidence of it through a telescope, or even to listen for messages from it, are all improving, and fast. And music that tells heart-wrenching stories, that reveals the soul of the artist. Music with an edge. These probably aren't the words you'd use to describe soft rock, and in recent decades, you'd have been right. But the genre is changing, again. First up, though. Brutal winter storms swept through America this week, killing more than 30 people. More snow is expected in the south and east in the coming days. Electric grids were overwhelmed by surges in demand, leaving millions without power and shivering amid dangerously low temperatures.
2: Officials have warned people not to bring grills or propane heaters indoors after carbon monoxide poisoning killed at least two people and hospitalized several others.
1: The grid failures were most severe in Texas, which experienced widespread blackouts. Governor Greg Abbott spoke at a press conference yesterday.
2: The fact is, every source of power the state of Texas has access to uh, has been compromised.
1: Finger pointing and blame placing have already begun. Some Republicans claimed the state's reliance on renewable energy was the source of the problem, a charge shot down by White House press secretary Jen Psaki yesterday.
0: Numerous reports have actually shown the contrary, that it was failures in coal and natural gas that contributed to the state's power shortages. And officials at the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which operates the state's power grid, have gone so far as to say that failures in wind and solar were the least significant factors.
1: Politics aside, the crisis has put a spotlight on weaknesses within America's infrastructure, a particular concern as extreme weather events are on the rise.
3: This week, whole skylines, like Dallas's, went dark to conserve power.
1: Alexandra Sewich bass is a senior correspondent for The Economist and is based in Dallas.
3: Texans were advised to stay indoors, although some didn't really have a choice because they lost power and their homes were so cold that they braved the roads to try and check into the few remaining hotels with rooms only to see hotels' power go out as they arrived. Others put on every piece of ski wear they owned and tried to stay inside their homes, hoping the heat and light would go on. What were supposed to be, quote-unquote, rolling blackouts were often long-lasting. So we saw people lose power for 24 hours, 36 hours, sometimes longer. At a peak this week, we had 4.5 million households in Texas without power.
1: So why the blackouts? What went wrong with electricity supply?
3: This was really a perfect storm of failures, and I would point to three causes for the blackouts. One is a failure of forecasting, another is a equipment failure, and a third is a failure, a potential failure in the design of the market and not having enough capacity to meet demand.
1: Let's take those in turn. In what way was this a a failure of prediction?
3: What we have seen this winter is a record cold streak and snowfall. We haven't seen it in about 30 years, temperatures reached this low in Texas. And so ERCOT, which operates the grid, knew that it was going to get cold and knew there was going to be snowfall, but did not prepare. They thought they had enough capacity to meet the demand, and they were off significantly. Some say they should have been better at forecasting because there had been allusions to the weakness of the grid in the past. In the summer, say, Texas has seen brownouts before, but never before has the state in recent history seen so much demand in the winter. And that's where ERCOT's forecasting really did the state poor.
1: And as for equipment failures?
3: This was an interesting one. At the very beginning, Republican politicians came out pointing fingers as saying that this showed the failure of green energy in America and renewables were to blame. In fact, that's actually not the story at all we now understand. Natural gas, which accounts for about half of Texas's energy supply, went offline. Um, the freezing cold temperatures caused natural gas plants to break down. And so did the supply chain and pipelines. It wasn't possible to operate in such freezing temperature. The cold also caused a reactor at one of the state's two nuclear plants to go down. Wind turbines froze. And it may be that transmission lines that help distribute electricity may have also iced, analysts think. So it was really an across-the-board failure of equipment.
1: And you mentioned also the design of the energy market. I mean, how, how does that figure in here?
3: Texas's energy market is really unique because of its independence. That works well during good times where weather patterns are as predicted. In difficult times where the grid is stressed, other states are able to import power and electricity from other states. Texas does not have that ability because it's not connected. And so that independence is part of what caused issues this winter. The other feature of the market is that Back in 1999, the legislature deregulated the power market to encourage competition. And so while ERCOT oversees the grid, we see some 300 retail electricity providers buy fuel on the wholesale market and then sell it to customers. So customers have a lot of choice. It results in lower costs. Texas's are half the cost of electricity in, say, California. But deregulation has also meant that the state and centralized authorities haven't required investment that might have helped combat some of the problems we've seen emerge during this cold spell.
1: But this uniquely designed system does not seem to be designed flexibly.
3: Yes, I think that this event has really put in stark relief the limitations of this system. And I think this event is going to lead to a political reckoning. Already we've seen calls by the governor and the House Speaker to investigate what's gone on with ERCOT. And I think there are going to be some proposed fixes. One big question is whether or not Texas needs a capacity market. And that basically acts as an insurance product. So if we see extreme temperatures, there's more reserve capacity. The reality is that that would raise consumers' electricity prices. And so it's unclear whether or not consumers will ultimately want that and whether that's going to be the conclusion of this investigation. But there's certainly going to be a lot of discussion about what fixes Texas needs so that it's better prepared to withstand extreme weather events like this one.
1: You would imagine, though, that it's certainly after an event like this, people wouldn't mind paying a bit more for their energy if it's insurance against this kind of disaster happening again.
3: That may well be true. I think the key question to ask is how long lasting the lessons from this experience will be. We saw after the polar vortex in 2014 that hit the East Coast, PJM, a regional transmission organization, started making higher payments based on the reliability of service. So that encouraged providers to invest in their equipment to ensure performance during peak demand. We could imagine Texas embracing a similar concept It will depend on how politicized this event ends up being and whether politicians choose to draw incorrect conclusions about what caused this versus what did. But I think the hope of all Texas customers is that there are real changes that are made that help ensure the reliability of the grid going forward because we're going to see more of these extreme weather events.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Alexandra.
3: Thank you. Five, four, engine ignition, two,
2: one, zero, and liftoff.
1: It's been gone for more than six months. It's traveled through nearly 300 million miles of space. And at last, later today, NASA's Perseverance rover will, if all goes well, gently be lowered onto the surface of Mars. The rover, they call it Percy, will go exploring, gathering rocks and soil samples, but also keeping an eye out for past signs of microbial life. Mars is, galactically speaking, an easy place to go looking for evidence that there's life out there. But grander plans are already underway for more distant missions, and telescopes are looking much further still, all to answer a profound question.
4: I think human beings have always wondered whether they're alone in the universe.
1: Alec Jaw is a science correspondent for The Economist.
4: For the entire history of our species, that question of whether we're alone is, is really essentially been unanswerable. But that's really changed in the past couple of decades. And there's real confidence in the scientific community now that maybe in 10, 20 years, we'll have a really good idea of whether or not we're really alone in the universe.
1: So what's changed then in the past couple of decades?
4: A few things have changed. Firstly, in the early 1990s, we discovered the very first exoplanets. These are planets beyond the solar system. As of today, there are more than 4,000 confirmed in our galaxy. And we know that there are probably billions, maybe even trillions more of them out there. So the technology for the discovering this has, got, has gotten much, much better. The technology to actually look at those exoplanets and understand what's on them, what they're like is really coming of age now, and that's what the next 10, 20 years is going to be all about, is studying those exoplanets and working out what kind of molecules are in the atmospheres, all sorts of things that might give us clues about what's there and whether there might be life or not. The other part of it is that the theory underneath it all has really, really come a long way. Several decades ago, we might have thought to ourselves, well, what do you actually look for? There were ideas that you could look for various chemicals or other things, but there was not much theory underneath that. In the last 20 years or so, astrobiologists have really come up with ideas of what molecules to look for, what concentrations they should be, whether these things are pre- produced by life here on Earth or whether they're natural. And so a lot of that has really come together to put scientists in a position where they've got the theory, they've got the technology, and all they need to now get is the data from space.
1: But I guess the first question is, what is a habitable planet? You say that there are 4,000 exoplanets out there, and how to narrow those down?
4: what we're looking for in terms of searching for life is kind of planets like Earth. So what's special about Earth is that it's in the habitable zone of the Sun. And what that means is that it's not too far away that any liquid water on the surface would freeze, but it's not too close that the liquid water would evaporate. So it's just right. And liquid water is fundamental to life on Earth. It's every single life form uses it. Life is thought to have started in water. And so the assumption has been for a long time, and it's not been proved incorrect yet, that life else elsewhere, wherever you find it, will probably need a medium like water. And we know how to look for water. So that's the first thing that people have been looking for.
1: But once you've got it narrowed down to Goldilocks zones and watery worlds, what next?
4: The first thing you want to look for is to try and understand whether it has an atmosphere. It hasn't really been possible to do that until now. A telescope going up this year called the James Webb Space Telescope, the NASA telescope, which is kind of a successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, it will be able to look at exoplanets many, many light years away and understand whether those things have atmospheres and it will be able to measure through spectroscopy what kinds of molecules are in those atmospheres. And once you can get to that sort of resolution, you can start to sort of ask questions like, well, does it have oxygen? in the atmosphere. And that is seen, generally speaking, as a biosignature. And and biosignature just means some sign that there could be life there. Oxygen is not a foolproof biosignature. There could be other potential ways, volcanic activity and so on, that mean that there's oxygen in an atmosphere. But again, these are the kinds of questions that will be answered in the next 10 years or so, because there are even more telescopes coming.
1: But all of that sounds a lot harder when you're looking much further away. What about efforts to find signs of life closer to home?
4: Another strategy in the search for life elsewhere is to look on our neighbouring planet, Mars. And Mars has really had so much effort directed towards it in the last few decades. All the NASA rovers and probes have kind of been gearing up towards answering the question of whether there's life there. Whether they're explicitly about that or not, they're all working on the pieces of that question. And Perseverance rover is going to be the first rover that will actually have experiments on board which will be able to detect signs of life. If there was life on Mars in the past, and There's every reason why that could happen. I mean, three and a half billion years ago when life started on Earth, Mars and Earth were very, very similar. There was liquid water on both planets. There was an atmosphere. All of that suggests there could have been life there. If life was there, it's probably not there now, but you might have fossils. You might have evidence of microbes that have long died. And Perseverance will be able to look for those. The most exciting thing, I think, in the solar system, in terms of the search for life, is probably the moons of the gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn. Europa and Enceladus are interesting specifically because these moons are essentially water worlds. They have global oceans all over them, covered in several hundred kilometres of solid ice. No one thought that there would be liquid water so far from the sun. So... There are experiments proposed for the 2030s, probably, which would send missions out to those planets to sample the water that comes out of Enceladus. Another mission would actually try and land on Europa and sail on the oceans to try and sample the water there to see if there are living microbes there. Mars is, for all intents and purposes, dead. But Europa, Enceladus, these places might actually have microbes of some sort floating around right now.
1: But you keep talking about microbial life. What about hunts for the intelligent kind?
4: So the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI as it's called, has been going on since the 50s. Radio astronomers have been scanning the skies looking for radio signals. Today, they call these techno signatures. So we've described so far looking for molecules or fossils, these are biosignatures. But a technosignature would be if an advanced civilization could create technology, then we might be able to spot it from very far away. You might look for the lights of an alien city from many, many light years away. And you can actually do that with instruments that are getting better and better now. Bear in mind that the Milky Way is 100,000 or so light years across. And it could be, again, that technological civilization on the other side of the galaxy exists right now, but we won't know about it for another 100,000 years. Who knows where humanity is going to be at that point, whether we will still exist. So it's very, very difficult to actually find evidence for this sort of thing.
1: And what's your personal view looking across all of these different approaches, technologies, ideas, outlandish and otherwise? Do you think that in our lifetimes say that some sign of life out there will be found?
4: So if I can step out of my strictly scientific worldview for a second... My feeling is that given the technology that's coming online now, I think we will find something significant out in the next 10 years. So by 2030, I really believe that we'll know something important. If life is common in the universe, if it turns out that, you know, if you have the right environmental conditions that life just starts, then we'll know that by 2030, I think, with the technology that we've got coming online. If we find by 2030 that we've discovered nothing at all, not even a hint of life, that's an important discovery too, because it tells you that life isn't common. It is really hard to start. When it comes to intelligent life, I mean, that's a real war in a trillion shot. The mathematics of that make it very unlikely, but I'm not going to stop hoping.
1: Alec, thank you very much for joining us.
4: Jason, thank you very much. Live long and prosper.
1: Mallock has been quite busy this week. He's the co-host of a new weekly show from Economist Radio that just launched. It's called The Jab.
4: We're following the vaccine story as it enters its most critical phase. The speed of vaccine development already stands as one of the greatest achievements of medical science. But getting those vaccines out of the lab and into people's arms will be one of the most complex logistical challenges in history. In each episode of The Jab, we'll focus on a different part of the vaccine rollout and a different part of the world.
1: Find The Jab wherever you get your podcasts.
2: dollars was...
1: All right, radio fans, it's about 80 degrees out there, traffic's backing up on the Intracoastal Highway, but don't you worry, we're going to ease you right into the soft rock hour. It's not uncompromising, it's not uncomfortable, but it is uninterrupted here on Economist Radio. Don't you come knocking when we're soft rocking. The phrase soft rock conjures a certain kind of toothless, middle-of-the-road, ultimately forgettable music — you know, the stuff of dentists' offices. But that's not how it got its start, and now that it's having a resurgence, that's not how it's turning out.
2: Soft rock is a musical style that evolved in the 1970s, when music got, well, it's in the name, softer. Michael Han writes about arts and culture for The Economist. The best soft rock was quite adult and sophisticated. Um, it dwelt on quite detailed and intimate personal themes, and it could be surprisingly dark. I mean, I guess you'd think of, say, the poet's laureate of the genre being Fleetwood Mac, and their song Go Your Own Way from the 1977 album Rumours, which is an incredibly spiky song. is the right thing to do. Or think of The Eagles with Hotel California from 1976, the hotel where you can check out but you can never leave. It was dark music at its very
1: best. So so how has soft rock progressed then, since that time?
2: In the 1980s, soft rock got relegated really to being the background to wine bars and to coffee bars. You think of soft rock as being, say, the soundtrack to the TV series 30-something. It became associated with baby boomer smugness. But something changed in the middle years of the last decade. In 2006, an indie group called Midlake released a soft rock album that seemed really daring at the time because it went completely against what other indie groups were doing. Uh, The the album was called The Trials of Van Occupanther. There was a song on it called Roscoe that really seemed to capture people's imagination. And after that, other groups started following suit. Midlake almost became the house group for a, a new alternative soft rock revival. Right now feels like an absolute golden age for soft rock with a hard center. I'm about to get a if you listen to Jenny Lewis's album from 2019, On the Line, if you hear a track such as Red Bull and Hennessy, you'll hear a record that's far darker and deeper than any number of supposedly edgy artists. It was a record that dealt largely uh, with her mother's addiction problems.
1: But why you gotta-
2: In February alone, there were two great records that were clearly soft rock, but also had that thorniness from the great records of the 70s. There was Good Woman by The Staves, which is the three Stavely Taylor sisters from England. If you hear the track, Trying... I'll be here, trying... And their record pondered the nature of womanhood and the expectations foisted on women through the dual filters of the death of their mother and the new motherhood of Emily, one of the three sisters.
3: I'm so- you should be sorry too.
2: And there was also the Canadian band The Weather Station, whose album Ignorance expressed rage and fear about the climate crisis and about capitalism's role in it and about the encroaching sense of end times. Oh, gee,
3: dream, oh,
2: and if you listen to the track Atlantic, you'll hear a bleakness that you really don't hear much in mainstream pop. I should get all this dying off of my mind, sings Tamara Lindemann. It's a record that manages to sound almost entirely pleasurable, despite its bleakness.
1: And, and what are audiences making of this resurgence of the, the spikier end of soft rock?
2: Whether this soft rock revival is going to be a huge audience grabber, I, I don't really know yet. But I think that because it's such a grown-up thing, it deals with grown-up emotions, it deals with grown-up feelings, you're never going to see it challenging in the Spotify playlists the Ariana Grande's and the Selena Gomez's of this world. It's something that's likely to find its audience among people who want to listen carefully to things, who aren't after the latest sensation, because it's music that demands attention, not just lyrically, but musically too. I mean, is that to say that the kind of bland and toothless version is gone? Is this kind
1: of a a zero-sum rock game here?
2: There will always be bland soft rock records you know, bland records always serve well as sound beds for television shows they always play well in retail shops or in your local mcdonald's but for soft rock with a hard center but it conveys emotional and intellectual messages that feel at odds with the music that's being conveyed and that contrast gives it i think an extra power michael thank you very much for joining us that's a pleasure
0: thank you
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Don't forget to leave us a rating and a review and see you back here tomorrow.
0: Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the 5th Annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.